Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. As he said, we've been in a series on the uh, on the book of Job. Job is part of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is is the Bible uh, before Jesus. And when we began this series, this uh, this eight week series in the book of Job, we 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 made this commitment. We made this promise up front that we would have uh, an honest discussion. That we uh, would not paint the life of Job or the responses of Job in a more flowery, beautiful light than they really are. That we would have an honest real, at times, raw discussion as we made our way through the book of Job. And so the way that the book of Job uh, opens up, it opens up with this description of Job and his family. And basically, we, uh, we said that if you look at the life of Job, he's, he's basically Billy Graham with Bill Gates' money and the perfect family. Uh, and, then, and then, right after that, there's this scene, this scene, this heavenly court scene between Satan and God. Uh, where Satan is out looking for someone to devour, and God says, hey, Satan, have you ever thought about Job? And Satan says, nah, but he'll do. No, but he'll do. And then he proceeds to take his property, his kid's life, his health. And then at the end of chapter 2, after Job's life, this life that he had um, spent years building just unravels overnight, uh, there's this scene where these three friends show up and they just sit there in silence. And it appears that there's a question that chapters 1 and 2, this introduction to the book of Job, are, are, is leaving out there. And it appears that the question is this. It's a legitimate question. Why do good things, that's not true, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a real question, a legitimate a legitimate question, one that many of us wrestle with. That If God is good, if he's real, if he's loving, why Why do bad things happen to good people? But we said that asking that question, as legitimate as it is, is like getting in the pool, but getting in the pool on the shallow end. If you're going to swim across the pool, at some point, you have to go down the slope into the deep end. And that as we follow the book of Job down the slope into the deep end, here's what we find out. We found out the real question, the deeper question is this. Is God just in a world of injustice? Is God just in a world of injustice? And from there, there's a series of conversations between Job and his friends. And the basic thesis of the friends is this. Hey, hey Job, hey, man, my boy, you know how life works. Like, you get what you deserve, man. You know how life works. You get what you deserve. And then the basic thesis of Job is this. Y'all know me. Like, y'all know me. You know I don't deserve this. You know I didn't do anything to earn this. I don't, I, you know me and I don't deserve this. The friends, basic thesis, you get what you deserve. Job, I don't deserve this. And today we hit the last stand, Job's final stand. And Job's going to start this final stand with the root issue, the undercurrent issue that drives all of it for Job. But by the end of this final stand, here's what's going to happen. Job's going to force you to ask a question. He's going to impose a question on you, and it's a question that only you can answer. And we'll get there in a minute. Let's get started. Job 29, verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, 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 that I were as in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me. So here's what, 
Here's what Job is saying. This is where Job starts his last stand. You ready? I want my life back. I want my life back. Oh, as if I were in the months of old, I want my life back. I remember my life and I want it back. But what about it does he want back? Verse 3. When his lamp shone in the when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Pause real quick. Sojourn. Can, can I one of the reasons that we misunderstand Job a little bit, one of the reasons that we theologize at Job, one of the reasons that we try to um, understand Job without engaging and, and, and emotively even engaging in what's happening with Job is that we have this uh, kind of a faulty picture of the life of Job. Right, we read chapter 1, Job 1, and we think, man, this dude must have just never cried. Like, never. Nothing ever went bad in his life. But here he's saying, man, even, even in the dark days, even in the dark days, it was by his light that I was walking of course, he had dark days. Job was affected by Genesis 3 and sin and its effect on a fallen world, just like you and just like me. Verse 4, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. This word friendship, it, uh, it's more than a casual acquaintance. There, there was a Hebrew word that meant casual acquaintance, but this is not it. Uh, this is the word that that Abraham used when he said, I'm a friend of God. It's, it's a word that's more reflective of an intimate relationship, so it's not, it's not like a coworker and it's not your spouse. It's, it's kind of somewhere in between. It's, this, it's an intimate relationship. That's what he's saying, that there was a day when that kind of friendship existed between me and God, and I missed that day. And now listen to verse 5. Verse 5. When the Almighty was yet with me. When. when my children were all around me. Listen to Job. I want my kids back. I miss my kids. God, we used to laugh. Oh, we would laugh. Man, we used to party. We'd set up washers. Cornhole sometimes. We'd play phase 10, but we'd all get in a fight. God, I miss my kids. Those parties are just memories now. They're just memories that I want back. For some of us in here, we're, you know, we, we haven't had kids, we haven't lost our kids, but but for some of us, if we're going to feel what Joe is feeling here, if that's our aim, then, then maybe it'd be easier and better to just imagine parents instead. Some of us in this room have lost parents far too young, and we're sitting here right now going, I want my dad back. I want my mom back. God, if I could just hear one more cheesy joke from my dad. God, he thought he was funny. He was never funny. We laughed anyway because we didn't know what else to do. Or man, if I could just... Man, if I could just have my mom watch, you know, one more romantic comedy. I've actually never thought that. <laughs> but if I could just one more day. This is Job. I want my kids back. I miss my kids. Verse 6. When my steps were washed with butter. 
and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. The streams of oil, this rock pouring out streams of oil. This is a Hebrew idiom that just basically means this. Um, whatever it is that you need for life, I've got an abundance of it. It's overflowing. It's just pouring out. And so I think that if we, um, if we were to close our eyes together, and you, you can do that if you want, don't do that if you don't want to, but if we closed our eyes, and just imagine Job, we can see this man, ancient Near East, sitting on a rock out in the hot sun, probably a lot of dirt, not a lot of trees, there's, there's maybe a tree over there, he's got you know, the white garb, I, I assume white, I don't know why, it was probably really dirty, he's got a rope going around him, and he's just clenching his fist. He's got tears pouring out clenching, going, I want my life back. This is not fair. I want, it, I want my kids back. I don't want to be in poverty anymore. And I think the key phrase that if we're going to understand Job here and we're going to get to the root issue that's sitting underneath every other issue he's already talked about, the key phrase is hidden in verse 5, and it's this, when the Almighty was yet with me. I looked at my life then, and I knew, and I knew, man, the Lord is with me. I look at my life today, and I have little to no evidence that he's with me. I've got little to no evidence that even in the dark days, I knew his lamp is out in front of me. Today, nothing. I am surrounded by darkness. When I looked at the circumstances of my life, I knew God was with me. I look at my life now, I'm not so sure about that. And how you want more proof? I'll give you some more proof. Verse seven, when I was out of the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, and their hand was on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue struck the roof of their mouth. The gate of the city, this is the social, economic, cultural hub of the city. And Job is saying, when I would be in that hub, not only did I have my own seat, which by the way, nobody gets their own seat, but I got my own seat. When I'm in my own seat in this center of the city, in this cultural, social, economic hub, and I speak, they listen. I was a man of dignity. If I can maybe bring this forward into today, um, the best parallel, the best, uh, this is what Job is saying. Is he saying, hey, listen, when I would stand up, the White House, the Supreme Court in Hollywood would shut their mouth. They wanted to know what I had to say. They wanted to know what I had to say. And then we hit chapter 30. And chapter 30 opens like this. But now... But now, that's the strongest Hebrew contrastive that you could use. Like the first time reader would have read this, they'd have seen that and gone, oh, here we go. Like whatever's coming now, it's not like before. It's not like before. But now they laughed at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Hey, they're, they're not listening to me. In fact, not only do they not listen to me anymore, they're laughing at me. When I go into the city center, when I, when I head to downtown, this is, this is what used to happen. They used to shut their mouth and listen, but you know what they do now? They laugh at me for even being there. 
that laugh at me. And if we're going to feel Job, if we're going to have a frame of reference for Job here, we're going to have to talk about something that might be an incredibly sensitive issue for some of you. You ready? Dogs. Dogs. Today, um, when we think of dogs, some of us buy outfits uh, for our dog. Uh, We take them to the mall. Uh, We say things like they're part of the family. Uh, And listen, I'm not anti-dog. In fact, I'm in process of getting a dog right now. It wasn't by my choice, but grandparents bought a dog for the grandkids, and I got duped into owning a dog. And so here we go. Um, I don't know if any of you guys watch Shark Tank. I fancy myself a non-entrepreneurial entrepreneur who doesn't do anything with it. Um, And I love Shark Tank, which is about the most entrepreneurial thing that I do. Some of y'all just got that. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks ago, a month ago, I was watching Shark Tank, and there was this episode where uh, the startup business is on there pitching their $1,000 pet houses and whatever. Uh, One of the things that they were pitching on one of their products uh, was a remote control seat for for little Fluffy to ride around the house on because, heaven forbid, Fluffy would sweat. Um, (laughs) In Job's day, there were no dog people. Dogs were not part of the family. In Job's day, dogs were basically pariahs at the bottom of the social ladder. And so when Job is saying, um, I'm despised and laughed at by people who I wouldn't entrust my dogs to, this is what he's saying. Um, he, he's saying uh, that my, my pet pariah, the, I, I wouldn't let them watch my pet pariah and they're laughing at me. In other words, when I look at these people's lives, I think their life is no laughing matter. And yet they laugh at me. They are so far down the social ladder that their life is not a laughing matter, and yet they laugh at me. So Job, God has abandoned, publicly shamed, which takes Job now to utter despair. 30 verse 16, and now, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. Verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. This is Job saying, my soul is empty. My soul is empty. Come on, Lord, fire more arrows at my heart. My soul can't be poured out any more than it is. And my tears are unseen. Lord, I'm I'm before you, and I am weeping, and you don't see me. This is the DNA of a man in despair. A man in despair. And if we're all, uh, if we could be fair to Job for a minute, we've all been there, right? And we've all been there for far more insignificant reasons than Job is there, right? Like I miss a connecting flight, and I can become Job real fast. I tried to save 14 bucks, not going direct. That was a waste of time. Now I know my schedule. Get a plane here. I can be Job fast. 
You let ice build up in my home. It can become joke fast. This is the man, the DNA of a man in despair, but we all know this, that despair never stops there, that, that despair as we follow Job, we know that despair is always going to lead to one of two places. Either it's going to lead to outright depression uh, or it's going to lead you to dig your heels in pridefully and search for someone to blame. Right? So, so despair, um, despair is like the slide on the side of a pool. You, you climb up to the top of the slide, you, you inch your way forward, you don't stay there. Right? You, you slide down and you land in the pool. The question is which pool? Is it the pool of depression or is it the pool of, man, I'm digging my heels in, I'm going to find someone to blame. Digging his heels in and finding someone to blame is exactly where Job finishes his last stand. Job 31, verse 1. This is his conclusion to his last stand, to this final, um, this is all I've got. And he opens it up with this, these words. I have made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Now, um, hold on to that phrase because it's going to be important in about five minutes, all right? And if I could summarize the rest of verse 1 through 34, Here's what Job is saying. Hey, listen, here's the ledger of my life. You know I don't deserve it. Here's what he runs to. This is just some of it. Some of it. God, have I been faithful to you? Yes. Have I committed adultery? No. Did I treat my servants unjustly? No. Was I generous to the needy? Yes. Was I vindictive? No. Was I hospitable? Yes. Was I a hypocrite? No. Here it is, Lord. I don't deserve this, and you know it as well as I do. I don't deserve this. This is Job's version of the game that we play when we say, but Lord, I prayed. I prayed. I prayed. I I am still single, and I don't want to be single anymore. Lord, I have prayed. Why are you not listening to me? I, I read the Scriptures I do the things that you tell me to do. Why am I still unemployed? Every Sunday morning, I'm at 608 Aurora. Why is my marriage still in strife? I do the things that you said to do. Why is my life turning out the way that it is? In verse 35, Job now gets bold. Thought he was bold before, now he gets bold. Verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely, I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Now, let me tell you, I I love uh, the 30, 35, 40 minutes that we get to do this every week. I love it. I mean, it's some of the best minutes of my week. I love this. And when we do this, there are times, uh, there are times where we quote a commentator, professional theologian, because they just say it better. Right, like they're just smarter than we are. Certainly smarter than I am. That might not be true for Drew or Dodds. I don't know, but it's true for me. Uh, They're smarter than I am, and so they say it better. But then there's times where we quote because the gravity of what's happening. This is one of those times. 
I'm going to read you from a commentator here. This is his summary of 35 through 37 and what Job just did. Here it is as if the creator of the universe has summoned to appear before what is in effect an impeachment tribunal. Job implies God has treated me as guilty. And if, in fact, I am not guilty, then God stands guilty of injustice. Or so it appears. See, here's where Job is. Job's answering the question, is God just in a world of injustice with, it sure seems like he's not. Sure seems like he's not. I'm, I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. If I'm innocent, he has to be guilty. And now uh, I've got evidence, right? Because listen, if I could just get a trial, if I could just get a trial, I can clear my name and place the guilt where it belongs. And I've got evidence for this. Verse 38. This is going to feel like it comes out of nowhere, but I'll explain it in a second. If my land has cried out against me, its furrows have wept together. If I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owner breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley, the words of Job are ended. I know, like, this land stuff, where in the world could that have come from? That, that is straight out of nowhere. But, but again, for the gravity of it, let me read you the same commentator. Job is claiming that the covenant he has kept, this takes us back to verse 1, I said, hang on to the, I have kept this covenant. Job is claiming that the covenant he has kept with his conscience is a covenant in the sight of God. It's a covenant to live in tune with creation's order. Later, when there's a covenant with Israel, the promised land bears witness to the covenant and laments when Israel is unfaithful. Translation. Hey, you, you guys know how this covenant stuff works. Like, if, if the land is good, then I've obeyed the covenant. If it's bad, then clearly I haven't. And the land is saying, I am innocent. The land is crying out, not Guilty. Not guilty. The land doesn't lie. This is like that, you know, that deal in a basketball game where a guy gets fouled, he doesn't really get fouled, and then he shoots the free throw, misses the free throw, and you say, ball doesn't lie. This is Job. The land, land doesn't lie. Land doesn't lie. Side note, balls do lie, by the way. But Job here, the land doesn't lie. It doesn't lie. And you know what the land is saying? It's saying, I am innocent. I didn't do anything. I don't deserve this. He's saying the land is innocent. No, the land is saying that I'm innocent. In fact, I don't even need that trial. Forget the jury, forget the verdict. I have my verdict. The land is declaring it. And now the words of Job are ended. And if you listen closely, here's what you hear Job saying. You hear Job saying, 
Lord, I have nothing left to say to you. I'm done. So Job, having experienced this broken relationship with God, public shame, despair, and now having turned and found the one to blame, where does he go? Where does Job, in the middle of this, go? Where does he turn? What does he do? The truth is, the reality is, that where Job goes, where he turns, is unknown to him. It's yet unknown to him. Back in week one, we said this about the book of Job. We said that Job was written before Isaiah 53. And that Job would have been source material for Isaiah 53, which is this famous passage about the suffering servant. And the suffering servant, we said, is a direct arrow, direct prophecy to who Jesus is. And so therefore, Job is an imperfect picture of the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus who suffered like Job, Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put a reed and put a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. What did Job experience? Broken relationship, public shame, and despair. And right here in Matthew, what does Jesus experience? Broken relationship, public shame, and despair. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Job and Jesus? Philippians 2 is the difference. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, here, here's the difference. Job, in the midst of his suffering, was searching for someone to blame. Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, was willing to take the blame. You see, the trial that Job wanted, the trial that he so desperately wanted to happen, it happened. It just didn't happen in his lifetime. But on the cross, this is what was happening. On the cross, Jesus was being declared guilty so you and I could be declared innocence. All the guilt of our sin, all the brokenness of our life was being poured out into the heart of Jesus so that the infinite innocence of Jesus could be poured out into the heart of us. The trial happened. And when you see this, when you see this, when you see that Job isn't the hero of the story of Job, here's what can happen. You can suffer like Job and lament like Jesus. You can suffer like Job and you can lament like Jesus. You can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me without searching for someone to blame? You can look at your life and say, God, but I've prayed. Why is this happening without searching for someone to blame? You can say, this isn't fair without searching for someone to blame. You can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me without searching for someone to blame? And this week, this week, three nights ago, I got a call from a longtime friend. 
a longtime friend whose family has been more influential in my life and my wife's life than they'll ever know. It's 10.30 at night, I was sitting on the couch, my wife next to me, our kid coming out of the bedroom for like the 10th time and us snapping at him going, it's time for the paddle now, we're done. When he said, my, my dad has cancer and the prognosis is likely going to be four to six months. And all I could do was just sit there and cry. My friend's daddy is a good man. 62, just had his first grandkids. He's the kind of man I hope my my son grows up to be like. And at some point, at some point that call comes, but it's not for a friend's dad, it's about you. It's someone else getting a call about your turn, about my turn. And here's the question. Here's the question that Job is forcing us to ask. You ready? When it is your turn, will you put God on trial? When it's your turn, will you put God on trial? The truth is, for some of us in this room, if we could just take the facade off, maybe have an honest moment together. The truth is that for some of us, God's already on trial. We look at our life, we look at what has or has not happened, and he's on trial. Verdict still out. And Job is saying to you, listen, it, it's time to, to let him off. So you, you know, as well as I know, that putting God on trial for the state of your life today is doing nothing but creating more and more bitterness, more and more anger about the Lord to the Lord that's spewing into every relationship that you have. And if He hasn't yet, it's only because it's boiling and ruining you on the inside. Job is saying, listen, for some of us, it's time for the trial to end. It's time to repair that broken relationship. Between you and the Lord, it's time for the trial to end. And listen, this is, this is why, because one day, if that's not you today, we've said the series on Job, this is a series about tomorrow for a lot of us. But one day, it's coming. That call comes about you. It, it comes for you. One day, it's your turn to sit where my buddy's dad sat last week in the doctor's office when the doctor looks him in the eye and says with the most compassionate words he can, this is the situation, this is the prognosis. Best case scenario, 12 to 24 months, but four to six is, is likely. And when that day gets here, here's the question. Who are going to be the loudest voices in your life? Who are they? Right, because listen, we, we talk every week about the necessity of community and deep relationship inside the church. It's why we say, hey, go get into a neighborhood parish. Go talk to people in the back. 
get in, like live life inside the church. Because listen, Job had community. Like Job had voices in his life. He had loud voices in his life. But those loud voices in the midst of his suffering led him down the road of, I'm going to find someone to blame. Because this isn't fair. Who are the loudest voices in your life? Will they be people that say, you know what, you're right, you don't deserve this. You can put him back on trial. Or will it be people who say the trial's already been had? He's already been found guilty in the cross that you could be found innocent. Lean into that trial knowing that in his suffering, it shows that he cares about your suffering. Who will be the loudest voices in your life? Let me tell you why that matters. The question of when it's your turn, will you put God on trial? It's not a question that we can answer for one another, but it is a question that we can answer together. It's a life-changing question. It's a life-shaping question. When that day gets here, we're all going to find ourselves on the top of a slide. We're going to inch our way forward, and eventually we just drop right down. The question is, which pool do we slide into? Do we slide into the pool that is the arms of Jesus ready to embrace? Or is it the pool of I have to find someone to blame? One pool is full of trust and joy. The other pool is full of bitterness and heartache. The question will be yours. When it's your turn, will you put God on trial? Let's pray. Father, I pray um, that, uh, that we would, when it is our turn, that we would lament like Jesus and not like Job, that we'd be able to be honest, um, open and honest with how we feel about what's going on in our lives, that we, that, that we would um, that we would not be afraid of genuine lament, but I pray that our lament would be like Jesus, where we trust and know that God is good, that he loves us, that he is for us, and that the suffering of his son says, I care, I care. And I pray for those of us in this room, men, women, friends, um, who are looking at their life right now uh, and are saying, God is on trial. Maybe we would never use those words, but but we know it. We know that it's true. I, I pray that today we might we might see that trial end as we come and embrace the grace and mercy of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.